0: Chapter nine of the power house by john Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter nine. Return of the wild geese. I do not think I was surprised at the news I read in the Times next morning. Mr. Andrew Lumley had died suddenly in the night of heart failure, and the newspapers woke up to the fact that we had been entertaining a great man unawares. There was an obituary in leader type of nearly two columns. He had been older than I thought, close on seventy, and the Times spoke of him as a man who might have done anything he pleased in public life, but had chosen to give to a small coterie of friends what was due to the country. I read of his wit and learning, his amazing connoisseurship, his social gifts, his personal charm. According to the writer, he was the finest type of cultivated amateur, a beckford with more than a beckford's wealth and none of his folly large private charities were hinted at and a hope was expressed that some part at least of his collections might come to the nation the halfpenny papers said the same thing in their own way one declared he reminded it of atticus another of mycenus another of lord houghton there must have been a great run on biographical dictionaries in the various offices Chapman's own particular rags said that although this kind of philanthropist was a dilettante and a back number, yet Mr. Lumley was a good specimen of the class and had been a true friend to the poor. I thought Chapman would have a fit when he read this. After that he took in the morning post. It was no business of mine to explode the myth. Indeed, I couldn't even if I had wanted to, for no one would have believed me unless I produced proofs, and these proofs were not to be made public besides i had an honest compunction he had had as he expressed it a good run for his money and i wanted the run to be properly rounded off three days later i went to the funeral it was a wonderful occasion two eminent statesmen were among the pallbearers royalty was represented and there were wreaths from learned societies and scores of notable people it was a queer business to listen to that stately service which was never read over stranger dust I was thinking all the time of the vast subterranean machine which he had controlled and which now was so much old iron. I could dimly imagine what his death meant to the hosts who had worked blindly at his direction. He was a Napoleon who left no marshals behind him. From the power-house came no wreaths or newspaper tributes, but I knew that it had lost its power. De mortuis, etc. My task was done, and it only remained to get Pitt Heron home of the three people in london besides myself who knew the story MacGillivray, chapman and felix the two last might be trusted to be silent and scotland yard is not in the habit of publishing its information tommy of course must some time or other be told it was his right but i knew that tommy would never breathe a word of it i wanted charles to believe that his secret died with lumley for otherwise i don't think he would have ever come back to england the thing took some arranging for we could not tell him directly about lumley's death without giving away the fact that we knew of the connection between the two we had to approach it by a roundabout road i got felix to arrange to have the news telegraphed to and inserted by special order in a russian paper which charles could not avoid seeing the device was successful calling at portman square a few days later i learned from ethel pitt heron's glowing face that her troubles were over that same evening a cable to me from tommy announced the return of the wanderers it was the year of the chilean arbitration in which i held a junior brief for the british government and that and the late sitting of parliament kept me in london after the end of the term i had had a bad reaction from the excitements of the summer and in these days i was feeling pretty well hipped and overdone on a hot august afternoon i met tommy again the sun was shining through my temple chambers much as it had done when he started so far as i remember the west ham brief which had aroused his contempt was still adorning my table i was very hot and cross and fagged for i had been engaged in the beastly job of comparing half a dozen maps of a despicable little bit of south american frontier suddenly the door opened and tommy lean and sunburnt walked in still at the old grind he cried after we had shaken hands fellows like you give me a notion of the meaning of eternity the same uneventful sedentary life i replied nothing happens except that my scale of fees grows i suppose nothing will happen till the conductor comes to take the tickets i shall soon grow fat i notice it already my lad you want a bit of waking up or you'll get a liver a little sensation would do you a lot of good and you i asked i congratulate you on your success i hear you have retrieved pitt heron for his mourning family tommy's laughing eyes grew solemn i have had the time of my life he said it was like a chapter out of the arabian nights with a dash of fenimore cooper i feel as if i had lived years since i left england in may while you have been sitting among your musty papers we have been riding like moss troopers and seeing men die come and dine to-night and hear about our adventures I can't tell you the full story, for I don't know it. But there is enough to curl your hair. Then I achieved my first and last score at the expense of Tommy Deloraine. No, I said, you will dine with me instead, and I will tell you the full story. All the papers on the subject are over there in my safe. End of chapter nine. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. End of the Powerhouse by John Buchan.